Adaji is here. I think Amal is here somewhere too. Okay, so um, let's do our Q&A. Um, <laughs> good. I hope you'll enjoy. So we uh, feel free to ask about anything and anything. And remember, there's a beautiful story of the, you know, the, oh, Amal, you're in California? Okay, wait, we'll talk soon. You, you tell me about that. You know that story about the, the bull? Oh, good night, dear Westerfer G. Sweet dreams. You know the bull, the one where the mosquito lived on his horn? Shram Krishna tells that story. And the mosquito, after a while, felt really bad about it. Because, you know, the mosquito, he had lived on his, on his horn. Pani Puri? What is Pani Puri? I don't know. Yeah, Those good. I think little yeah. dough balls with potato and puri, some yes, mint yes, water. Puri. Yes, yes, puri. Yes, yes. It's South Indian food. Yes, yes. I was thinking you meant that, but I was like, what is pani? I wasn't sure pani. Puri, yes, puri. Um, but yeah, the, so the mosquito, he's resting on the tip of the horn, right? And one day he has a change of heart. He feels so bad about it. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe I've just been on this guy's horn. So he comes and he apologizes to the bull. Oh, buffalo or bull, I'm so sorry. I've been living on your horn. I must have been a great burden to you. And the bull is like, what? Who are you? I didn't even notice that you were there. Come, live on my horn. And in fact, bring your whole family, bring all your relatives, bring your cousins and bring your friends and all of you come and live on my horn. It's nothing to me. That's a nice story. <laughs> yes, Richard G. I can finally hear you this time. Last week, I couldn't hear you, Richard. My computer was shot. But now, by the grace of God, Someone donated a new computer, so now I can hear you. Come, Richard. Awesome. Um, hi, Nish. Um, my question is, um, when we're studying Christ through something like the Bible, mm. there's a lot of controversial passages in there that people would point out and use those as saying, like, reasons why you shouldn't follow Christ. Yeah, um, yeah. So what to do about those verses? I think primarily the way, the truth, and the life, right? None can come to the Father except by way of me, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. I think that's like the main one because it seems like there the Christ is explicitly saying, in the English translation of King James, he's explicitly saying, um, okay, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you have to uh, profess a faith in me, Jesus Christ, right? It seems like it. Okay, so how do we navigate that? Now, a few things. My first response here regarding verses like this is it's very easy when there's like a single book to kind of distort that book to suit the political needs of the time. And that's been happening all throughout the history of not only Christianity, but also Islam and also often um, other traditions. But the difference between like Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and South Asian traditions is that the first three are one book traditions. But even that's not true. Because the Bible is a compilation of a lot of different books, especially the Old Testament. You know, so it's interesting because there's a very, very diverse type of religious literature that exists in every nation. It just got preserved a bit better in India. So in India, for instance, in Vedanta, there are lots of different texts on Vedanta and many of them disagree with one another. There is no like authoritative book, you see. There are many different books and you have to not only approach it through the light of scriptural kind of knowledge, but also through the right light of reasoning and experience. So the only way to validate a truth in the scripture is by cross-referencing it, not to just other scriptures, but also to the lived experience of your guru and your own practice and through the right light of your reason. So in the South Asian spiritual tradition, you're invited to think very critically and engage with things, re, uh, 
through a lens of reason. Now, that also is true of Islam and Christianity. Now, until recently, Christianity used to be a very debate-oriented culture. Like Thomas Aquinas would like straight up invite people to debate him in village squares. It was very debate-heavy. If you read St. Anselm and his three dialogues, or you read Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas, heck, if you read Kant, right? I would say Kant is like kind of like a later scholastic. They're all like Christian philosophers who thought very deeply about scriptures. Uh, Kierkegaard is also in some sense like that. So they, they, they use satarka, it's called true reason. You know? And then there are many mystics like Margareta Poretta, like uh, Meister Eckhart. And now mystics didn't do so well in the West. You know, so the moment they started declaring mystical experiences, many of them were excommunicated or killed or deemed heretical or whatever like that. So it's it's only recently, I would argue, that this kind of culture of debating has gone out of Christianity. Now it becomes more about belief than about critical thinking. But critical thinking was a big part of Christianity for most of its history. I mean, people were debating openly. And if you read Augustine, Augustine converted to Catholicism. Like he, he was, you know, kind of involved in some sense, but he professes in the opening of confessions, like just all these theological problems. And now he, obviously Augustine is writing towards the end of his life and he's already kind of established, but in confessions, it's quite confessional in that in the beginning, he says, I have all of these theological problems. And he was comfortable enough just admitting his theological problems and even kind of teetering on the edge of blasphemy. Teresa had to be very careful because she was very close to blasphemy, but she had to kind of protect herself from it. And she, she really did it. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. Insofar as you have many books, you're safe because you can compare one book to others. Insofar as you're approaching something with the clear light of reason, you're also safe. And insofar as you're checking things against your own personal experience, presumably because you're practicing yogas and having mystical experiences yourself, then you're safe. But what happens when you don't have personal experience? What happens when you're discouraged from reasoning? What happens when you're invited to believe? And what happens when you're invited to believe on the basis of only one book, which, by the way, you're reading in translation? Now, it's going to be sticky, right? So that's the problem. It's many books. The Bible is many books. Kings 1, Kings 2. These are all documents composed by Jewish, like Levi's and Kohens. And they're all, uh, Kings are all these state documents. They all got drawn together and crammed into one book. And they're all in Aramaic and in Hebrew. So many of the nuances of words that would be well known to the people in the Aramaic times are clearly not known to us. So we have no idea, I would argue, what, actually is happening in those books because we don't know the references we don't have the cultural jargon if you read the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna also you'll be like confused in many places because you're just not Indian like I think the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna is a good example you're not Indian so you just don't get some of this stuff like there's just some jokes and there's some references and if you read the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna and have that background you'd be like this is really deep because there's a lot of wordplay and kind of references to things that were only really known to that culture at that time. So even reading like Swami Nikolayananda's translation and not being Indian, like it's going to be beautiful, but you'll miss so much, right? In the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, you miss so much. Now that's true of a text composed in like the later part of the 19th century. How much more true is that going to be for a text that was composed in like, you know, God knows how long ago it was composed. And it's very anachronistic because they make mention of camels before, before camels were introduced by archaeological data. So it's a very confusing thing. Now, not only that, um, Aramaic is indecipherable for the most part. So it's been kind of sort of translated into some sense in, by, by, by some scholars. Then Greek, the New Testament is written in Greek. So I would recommend anybody who wants to quote the Bible, just like anybody who wants to learn Sanskrit texts ought to know Sanskrit. Similarly, anybody who wants to learn the Bible should take the time to learn some Greek. I don't know. 
I think it would just make sense if you want to make your whole life the Bible, you ought to know Greek, right? You ought to know some Attic or modern Greek, and you ought to know some uh, Latin so you can read Aquinas and Augustine in their own tongue. I've obviously never read Aquinas in Latin. I've only read him in English. Um, and I've, uh, I have a very, very poor understanding of Attic Greek. I like, I, I got a D in that class. So just know my added Greek is horrible, uh, but I have read the, those same passages in the Greek and it's very different, bro. Like, oh my God, Exodus, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. The word there in Greek is pharmakia, which by the way, in Greek, pharmakia does not mean witch. It means drug user. But like, um, maybe you could see in King James time, there was an overlap between maybe like certain groups of people and certain substances. So you just call them witches. But there's so many things like that, like pharmacia, there's use of certain grammatical terms. And I'm going to come to it in just a moment. I know I'm giving you a bit broad of an answer, but I'm coming and I'm, I'm zeroing in slowly, hopefully by, by the grace of God, we can. So um, there's a lot of problems, Aramaic, Greek. So they have to know Aramaic, they have to know Greek. So the first thing I would say is that you've never read the Bible. Like the people who claim like this is the truth. I'm like, how do you know? You don't know Greek. You don't know Aramaic. You don't know any of the cultural references that were unique to those people at those times. You've never read the Bible you people, you know, and neither has your pastor. Nobody of you, nobody knows what they're talking about. They cannot know what they're talking about. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is when we do look at those verses, there's a grammatical issue also. What does Jesus mean when he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life? Who is the I am in that statement? Is he speaking on behalf of Eheye, Esher, Eheye, or is he speaking on behalf of Yeshua? It's a very interesting question. Remember that the Christ is both God and man. He's both Jesus and the Christ. It's very important. He's both Jesus and the Christ. The question then becomes, is Jesus saying, I, Jesus, the Christ, am the way, the truth, and the life? Or is he instead saying, I, the Christ, who am the indwelling spirit in this man, Yeshua, who is in all brothers and sisters, who is the one God who was there before Abraham, that one is the way, the truth, and the life. What is he actually saying? Or is he saying, I, the man who has come to live surrendered to God, I am setting an example for you. And that, that way, the way of self-surrender, that is the truth. And you can only come to the father by me. Now, of course, a tantrika will understand this in the sense of you have to go through the relative to get to the absolute. So we say, okay, if you want to imagine God, he's infinite. How would you imagine him? Probably a sky, an ocean of light. But these things aren't infinite. The sky is a symbol. The ocean is a symbol. Even an ocean of light is a symbol. None of these things, sky, ocean, light, are in any way infinite. They're just spacious. So here we have a very real problem. How to fit the infinite in a finite mind? I can't fit the ocean into a cup. You know, so I cannot actually, it's impossible for me to conceive of the infinite, meaning I cannot look upon the face of God and live. It's just incomprehensible to my mind. So what do I do? Is all hope lost? And for many Jewish people, yeah, it is. A lot of Jewish people, their traditions have become legalistic and almost secular because they feel like God cannot be approached. You know, it's too infinite to be approached. So the way Jesus is trying to fix that problem that was prevalent in his time is to say, well, you can take the help of the relative. Yes, God is absolute. God is infinite. God is formless. But that doesn't mean you can't take the help of the finite, of the form, of the relative. So I, Jesus the Christ, I am a symbol. The cross is a symbol. I mean, of course, he wouldn't say that. I am, I am the symbol. I, my very life is the symbol. And I'm someone you can see and talk to and have dinner with, you know? So eat, drink, be merry, because you're in the presence of the bride, a bridegroom, rather, he would say. In other words, he would say, the absolute is here in me. But because you can't go direct to it, you can see its manifestation in me. Kind of like, I don't know what electricity is, but I know what it does. Similarly, I don't know what God is, but I know what it does. 
love, service, meditate, you know, like that. So that could be what he meant. And I would read that in that sense, that the relative is the help of the absolute I, Jesus the Christ, who am relative, are, am the way to understand the infinite absolute, you know. And Nagarjuna says exactly that in his second century AD, Mula Madhyamika Karaka says, you must take the help of the relative to get the absolute. Now, the reason I would say this, I would kind of throw my hat in for this interpretation is because in a different place in the Bible, the Sadducees and Pharisees are very upset about the Christ teaching. And they're like, who are you to teach? You're young. They say you're a young boy. Basically, they're saying, what authority do you have? You're too young to be teaching. We are children of Abraham. We are the sons of Abraham. Who are you? And you know, the Christ literally says, and, and the Greek here, the grammar is very interesting. He says, before Abraham was, hey, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, be careful. What's the grammar here? Before Abraham was, I am. Now, in other places, according to the Greek, Jesus was not adult when it came to grammar. He was very well spoken. He knew grammar. He knew how to speak. Um, but almost every translation, rightly so, reports this as before Abraham was, I am. Why did he say I am and not I was? Before Abraham was, I was. That would make sense, right? Before your father Abraham, so I was there. No, he says before Abraham was, I am. And obviously he's talking about God. Before Abraham was God, I speak in the authority of God. And that's my accreditation. It's the same authority that Moses approached the Pharaoh with. That same authority Christ approached people with. And that's what he was saying. So he's saying, I, Christ, am the uh, house. And inside the house is God. And that God is the infinite, the absolute. And you can't come to it except through way of the relative. So you need to take the help of a teacher. You need to be baptized. You need to have transmission. So baptism is a lot more than just dunking the head in water. It's about actually being converted, but actually feeling the living spirit of God within you. You know, so all of this makes sense to one who is living spiritual life, but it doesn't make sense to those who are doing spirituality for political re reasons. That's, I think, what I would say to that. Thank you. That was very helpful. Yeah. So I was a bit of a lot. I had no continence there. I was like, okay, this is quite close to my heart. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's an important, that's enough said about that. But also remember in the Bible, the Christ himself warns us about this sort of thing. He says, many will say, Lord, 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 the day of judgment comes. It's right there in the beginning of Matthew. He says clearly, beware the brood of vipers. You know, they'll say, Lord, Lord, Lord. But when the day of judgment comes, I will say that I did not know them. As I've often joked, it's like there's a club and we're all in the line, you know, and there's like a bouncer and he's reading off names on the list. And when those brood of vipers show up, they're like, but I'm on the list, right? And Jesus is like, nah, sorry, bro. <laughs> you never knew me. You know, you never took the time to understand what I really was. And most importantly, you preached me, but you didn't live me. You didn't turn the cheek. You didn't give the coat. You didn't walk the extra mile. You didn't, you know, you didn't do anything on the Sermon of the Mount. You didn't live up to the ideal. And so... No? How, can I, how can I say that you are of my own? And then he would say to people, I come not to bring peace. I've come to bring blood and a sword. But he knew, he knew that if you throw the pearls before the swine, they will turn and rend you. And he was all right with that. So anyway, I think th that's the idea about the fish in the sand, you know, that's just as relevant now as it used to be. Back then, the Christians, they were like, and Anjali will tell you, they were like a ragtag group of 
ascetics in the desert wandering about. And we'll get more of a vibe like that next week. We take up the Orthodox church fathers and sisters and all that. But these people, they were just like wandering about the desert, being persecuted by anybody and everybody with no land to call their own. And they needed to know that other people had their same values. So at the risk of death, they practiced their spirituality and they would like just draw a little fish in the sand, you know? And that's how they would kind of identify each other. The same is true now, except if you see a fish, it, it might just mean like uh, 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 just a person who's politically involved or a person who's spiritually involved. It's harder to know. So now you need something subtler. You have to like kind of look and see, is that person full of love? If they're full of love, then they're a Christian. Are they full of judgment? Then the Christ will say, I knew them not. Judge not lest you be judged. Thou hypocrites, how canst thou see the moat in thy neighbor's eye when thou canst not see the log in thine own? You know, <laughs> like that. So anyway, nowadays, to find the true Christians um, is a matter of like looking at Westifer, looking at Peggy. You know, Peggy, Westifer's grandmother, she's like through and through Christian, right? But she comes to all the pujas and she says, this can help me with Catholic worship. You know, she's, she comes to the lectures and, and learns ideas because she recognizes that there is in every tradition in the world, spirituality that, you know, and Peggy and Westifer, like those two people justify what Swamiji came here to do. He did not came here to make Hindus Hindus. That's why also people get so angry with me because you're like, look, Nish, you're Indian. You have this platform. Why don't you preach Sanatana Dharma? I say to hell with your Sanatana Dharma. I don't care for your Hinduism. I don't care for any of your religions. You know, I care about spirituality and that's got nothing to do with the cultural trappings around it. I'm not here for churchism, you know, like that kind of thing. So people get angry because they want me to preach Hinduism. They want me to make people Hindus, especially people who are Westerners who want to identify as Hindu culturally because they're fighting with their parents or something. So they want to be like Hindu and all that. I don't know. So, and they're like, but this is a Hindu space, not the political oppression of the Hindus, you know, all that stuff. So then they get a bit upset when I talk about like other traditions and stuff like that. But Swamiji himself said that we are here not to make uh, people Hindus. We're here to make Christians better Christians, Muslims better Muslims, you know, it, that's that's why we're here. This is this is spirituality. This is God. How can God be crammed into this or that dogma? So that's the thing. When we come here, it's good to talk about Buddhism and it's good to talk about Hinduism and good to talk about Islam, Sufis, and all that. Just so we can triangulate on that stuff which does matter. The stuff that which will you know the, the stuff that outlives all these kind of things that come and go. So Hinduism, what is it? It's the Upanishads. And what is the Upanishads? The essentialization of the Vedas. In some sense, the rejection of ritual. The, I wouldn't say rejection, but transcending of ritual for something deeper. Yes. All right. Yes, Amanda G. Welcome back, dear. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, so I'm sort of piggybacking off of what you mentioned, but yes, with um, when we look at the Bible, we can see that the Bible itself is not one Bible. It's not one book. It's yes. not even from one specific time frame because it's been right. interpreted ad nauseum. And the reason it has been interpreted is for what Nish was talking about using it politically. Because I would say Latin and Greek and the formation of formal language separated groups of people and to into different classes, right? They created entire languages, written languages for select group of people. And only those people had access to those um, alphabets, written words, all of it. 
And what that did is it set them apart from people who didn't. And it gave those people who couldn't read or couldn't write a sense of awe, a sense of um, admiration. And it gave the people who created this these languages and this writing and this way of speaking, it gave them power, uh, most importantly, because they could say things, they could read things, they could write things and say these things to these people, but they themselves could only listen. So that power that we see there moves from generation to generation and changes because different groups of people want that power. Right. And and when we look at a text that changes like that and why it changes, and you can see where words are used, different quotes, different interpretations of Greek and Latin-based um, the original, I would say, close to the original um, Bible, would uh, it's all a power grab in a way, which is why it's hard to rely on those texts um, to really be able to know God through them, because it's it's just different. Pe- like King James, right? King James version of the Bible. That's that's some arrogant. That's some arrogant stuff right there. He, a king is going to put his name on a Bible. I wrote this. Yep. And you know what? People read <laughs> it. People listened to it. But that was a king saying, okay, well, I know that y'all like your souls. And and I know that y'all like to listen to what I say. So here, this is going to like tie in everything that you believe and everything you're afraid of. And you're going to give me even more power than I already have over your land. Give me your soul, too. And that's why um, I feel like it's it's not so much the Bible as it is what Nish was talking about, where it's a collective, um, where you see the patterns of selflessness, of love, of um, joy, of the human spirit itself and all of the goodness that you see in the image of the Christ and you find those patterns throughout the world. And I think that's, that's essential to one's own realization. And that's where you can look at in Tantra, you can look at a tree and oh, God made that tree. God is that tree. That tree is joy. I am that tree. I am joy and so on and so forth. So I have always looked at those texts as the enemy because I had to. And now I can look at that and I can find its own essential goodness and look at all the garbage that has been added and addended over the past 2000 years based on different political parties. And you can find the essence of god and the essence of the christ the message of recognition of the self and i think it's a empowering thing to be able to find all of those messages throughout everything that we read everything that we look at and most importantly in the self but don't take them literally (laughs) never take it literally anyways that's all i had to say i love you all i like this phrase 
God made the tree. God is the tree. That tree is joy. And I am that. That was yeah. such a beautiful phrase. Like what a beautiful um, kind of handholding walk through all the traditions of duality to non-duality to the identification. Beautiful. That was so clean and nice. Thank you for that. You know, I would say, um, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. There's that beautiful episode with the Tower of Babylon. So it seems like humans were almost at the point where we could all speak the same language and be in agreement about something. And God is like, nope, that was such a Mother Kali move, right? To be like, well, what fun would that be? Would it be fun if everybody agreed? So in a spirit of play, we got to do all this stuff. It's funner this way. That's the tantric argument. It's funner with all the dissension and disagreement. And what? how boring would this world be without the brood of vipers? No, we like them. We love them. They're mother too. So that's the idea. Like, because sometimes we get into like a Christian mood, we can kind of carry with us that Zoroastrianism kind of like duality. There's good, there's evil, and there's the right way to do things, the true Christians. And then there's like the evil stuff. But then we forget what a boring movie if there weren't those other guys, if there weren't the brood of vipers, if there weren't the oppressors, if there weren't the bigots. If I didn't, if I didn't get so many Christian apologists making videos about our lectures and stuff like that. I wouldn't be having quite as much fun as I'm having right now. <laughs> I love poking the bear. I love um, these days though. Someone will say on TikTok, my favorite response now is this. Someone will say on TikTok, you're going to hell, et cetera. I said like the whole kind of thing. Right. And then I'll put the face. I'll do this face. <laughs> it's my favorite response now. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> But it's fun. How boring would it be? Imagine if I went on TikTok and I said any of this stuff and then everyone was just like, I love this. It's good. Vedanta, the science of all religion. Yeah, you're right. All religions are true. They're all popped to the one goal and the goal is beyond. Like how lame would it be if I just went on TikTok and it was like that? You know, this is fun. There's something, it's a push and pull here. I enjoy it when people come to the house on Tuesdays and scream about Hindu nationalism yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> remember, remember when we had those um, TikTok lives and some of you were saying like the energy, we were really glad that it wasn't there anymore because it was becoming so abusive and dark. I was so happy about that. And I was kind of sad when they kicked us off live for swearing too much. I'm glad YouTube doesn't have that same policy. But anyway, um, it was fun because there were all the, you know, Buddha Viper type people. That's the idea of the Tower of Babylon. And that's why Swamiji said, um, God forbid the Muslim become a Hindu or the Hindu become a Buddhist or the Hindu become Christian, like that. God forbid, because you'd lose all the diversity. Now, the question is, if the point was unity, why even bother to even in appearance manifest diversity? Even if this diversity was an appearance, why manifest it if the point was just unity? That was there from the beginning. So the idea is, if there's diversity, it's only because better than unity is unity in diversity. So there must be many religions. There must be many opinions. In fact, Swamiji said, there should be as many sects as there are people. And that does mean some disagreement, right? But with Vedanta, one can understand that Shiva, Krishna, Rama, Kali, they're all the same self, as I think Amanda Ji, you said so beautifully. So that's why it's nice to study Vedanta. It's non-sectarian. And it's the science, and I guess you could even say the foundation. And once you have it, as you said, Amanda Ji, the beauty is you can enter into any church, any mosque, any pagan forest fire ceremony, and you can enjoy it all, recognizing it's the same divine. So I think Swamiji said it most articulately, of course, which is Hinduism is that tradition, I'm paraphrasing a bit, which recognizes the highest absolutism and the lowest fetishism 
as both valid attempts to grasp the ineffable. They're both equally valid. So all books are good. That's why when we do our puja, that one of my favorite mantras is actually, Om Ete Ganda Pushpe, Gangadi Sarvatirte Bhyo Namaha. I offer this flower to worship Ganga and all other sacred pilgrimage places. Then, Om Vedadi Sarvashastre Bhyo Namaha. So I offer this flower to worship the Vedas and all other sacred scriptures in the world. Because the, the, the truth is beyond books. By Vedas, no books are meant, Swamiji would say. Yes, Jackson G. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Loud and clear. Um, so I'll start with my question. So is there a specific term for the like the difference between understanding on an intellectual level mm. versus actually like an ingrained spiritual understanding? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. There are a few different terms. One is aparavidya and paravidya. So apara, I'll put it in the chat. A para vidya means, oh my God. It's funny that vidya auto autocorrected to video because the root is the same. To see. Vidya means knowledge. Video also means to see. So apara video, no, apara vidya, which means lower knowledge. Now, actually, you could even call this knowledge of the relative. You know, so this is the knowledge that is in the mind. So it could be very subtle. And really, Apara Vidya refers actually specifically to Vedic knowledge prior to the Upanishad. So any knowledge you can get from the Vedas short of the Upanishad is technically called Apara Vidya. And that would just be at best like intellectual understanding because it's still in the realm of the mind, right? Then there's something else. Contrastingly, there's Para Vidya. Para Vidya. And this means knowledge of the absolute which obviously is something far beyond the mind so it doesn't really concern the mind that's why in the isha upanishad there's that mantra mantra three mantra four maybe forget exactly but in the isha upanishad it says it's not known it's not unknown it's not knowing or it's not not knowing it's beyond both knowing and not knowing so this is knowledge beyond the mind this is what we would call jnana so jnana by definition is paravidya which is the Upanishads Pramana, the teachings of the Upanishads. Now, that's one distinction. Another distinction would be between um, like book learning versus true learning. One distinction could be Jnana and Vigyana. Oh, actually, sorry. That wouldn't be the distinction between book learning. That would be the distinction between two states of Jnana. So Jnana would be knowledge of the impersonal, transpersonal, absolute Brahman. Vigyana would be the embodied wisdom of that whereby you can open your eyes and see with eyes open that same Brahman manifested as everything around you. So Sri Ramakrishna, he was very fond of this distinction between Jnana and Vigyana, which I guess translates to, to, to knowledge and wisdom. So knowledge is knowing that I am Brahman. But by the way, he did not mean intellectual knowledge. He meant like real, like nirvikalpa samadhi level knowledge. But even higher than that Jnana was Vigyana. So if we had to make like a list here, we would say Apara Vidya is the lowest. And then you've got Para Vidya, slash jnana which is second to that para vidya jnana and the highest is called vigyana you know these are these are three categories of knowing and the christians would say gnosis you know gnosis is different from knowledge it's like an embodied knowing it's an experiential knowledge and most importantly it goes beyond the mind so uh, the way i see it which I guess it somewhat is contradictory to that. It's like 
I, I, I love psychotherapy, like psychology stuff. So yeah. I see it as like one, just like you get the, you get, you heard the joke, but you haven't laughed yet kind of thing, yes. you know, you, but then it, through practice and like actual experience with that knowledge, then you get it ingrained in your unconscious and like reverse those habits. And I guess then, then you transcend the mind is my understanding. I don't know if that's. Yeah. That's perfect. I love, I love the laughter. You, you heard a joke, but you haven't laughed yet. Basically, you're talking about integration and assimilation. And there are, two, there are two ways to integrate. One is to integrate the teaching until it becomes a part of your lived experience. Then you get jnana. So the idea is you heard it, now you integrate it, and then you achieve jnana. Now, actually, you have to do another type of integration, which is to integrate it back into the thread and fabric of your life. So the integration number one is learning to live spirituality until you have attainment. Integration number two is learning to work that attainment into every single moment of your life to manifest the divinity that you discover. So you're right. I love the phrase unconscious or subconscious because we might on an intellectual level say, I am the self, I'm not the body and the mind. But the moment we get horny, the moment we get frightened, all of that's gone. So the question is, my mind knows my body doesn't. So we get that beautiful metaphor of the elephant. So in India, there are these elephant riders, these mahuts, they're called, ride elephants. So the mahut knows that it's wrong to eat the, what do you call it in English? Sugarcane? It's like bamboo, it's sugarcane, right? It's wrong to eat the sugarcane in a neighbor's garden. But the elephant doesn't know that. So the mahut can say, no, don't eat the thing. And the elephant will just, if it wants to eat the bananas, it will eat the bananas. If it wants to eat, so the body is like the elephant with all of its sangskaras, cultural, biological, you know, it it has its kind of momentum. Now, however much the mind, puny thing as it is, says, don't go that way. The body's going to go that way. So the elephant doesn't respond to intellect. It doesn't respond to clever arguments. It can hear the joke as many times as it want. It will never laugh because the joke appeals to the mind, right? Whereas humor, funnily enough, has to do with the body. So this elephant has to be trained. So you have to meditate. That's why after Shravana, after you've heard the joke, you have to manana, you have to think about the joke a bit. Then Nididhyasana, you have to sit with the joke, eyes closed, in peace and quiet, long enough for the joke to hit. In other words, the elephant needs to get it at the core of its being. So that's why Bhakti, Karma, Raja is very important. These, these yogas are ways to train the elephant until one day the elephant goes where you tell it to go. And then comes samadhi or then comes jnana and all that. Now the second step is to learn how to come back on top of the elephant and ride as now, you know, one being or something like that. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah. Do you have another question? More actually related to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering, how, I don't mean to put you on the spot if you're not familiar with this, but um, Matthew 8.20. So in Matthew 8.19, uh, there is a teacher of the law that came to jesus and said teacher i will follow you wherever you go and then in matthew 8 20 he replies foxes have dens and birds have nests but the son of the son of god has nowhere to lay his head yes and i was wondering how you um interpret that yeah 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 no and it's funny because matthew 8 22 so shortly after that it's great he you know there's, there's a great scene both like um you know where basically it's like him getting disciples, right? Mm. Like Matthew 8, 22, I think is the plow. Is it the plow or the funeral? One or the other. Let the dead mourn their dead. Is that Luke or Matthew? I forget. But it is, it is. Yeah, it's a follow me and let the dead bury their Let the dead mourn their dead. Yeah, so that's the thing. Like I love that like set of verses. Matthew 8, 22 is my favorite. Let the dead mourn their dead. Come, 
I love that so much. So basically, the reason we used that last week, I think we quoted it last week, uh, because th- these verses are concerned with renunciation. Now, Christ taught two things, and they're actually really one thing. They're two faces of one thing. He taught love, ecstatic love, wild, reckless abandon. He taught total surrender to God. Now, as a result, the obverse of the same coin um, is going to be renunciation. Wisdom with the world is foolishness with God and wisdom with God is foolishness with the world. So once he falls in love with God, naturally then the world has no appeal for him anymore. So he, you know, he would also say in Matthew, Matthew, look at the lavender, lily, sorry, look at the lily. Um, Even King Solomon is not clad in raiment finer than this. You know, so I think that's a beautiful thing. Like look at the lily. Simplicity, the Christ is able to enjoy simplicity. Good night, dear Amanda G. He's able to like look at something simple like the lily and say, that's beauty. And we could even get very Eckhart Tolle about this. And we could say, what's beauty is presence. You know, what he's experiencing there in the simplicity of the lily is all that spaciousness of awareness. And it's so nourishing to simply just be in that presence that he needs very little else. His true wealth is in presence. Now, also in Matthew, another kind of renunciation sort of line is the birds. You know, the, fo- uh, the, sorry, the, what do you call it? He likes to talk about animals a lot in Matthew. And in, in, in that line, he says, um, look at the birds. Think ye, they care what they wear and, you know, what they eat and what they will wear for raiment. They don't store in storehouses. And yet the Lord looks after them. Are ye not better than these sparrows? Like that. So he's telling his disciples, look at the sparrows. They don't worry about tomorrow. They don't care what they eat, where they sleep, what they wear. They don't even save things. They don't lay things up. Lay not up your treasures. They don't lay anything. So they are exemplifying what a holy man should be like. Holy men should be like birds. They should live with total dependence on God, not caring about where your next meal is going to come, not worrying about how you're going to save money because a holy man has no children, typically. You're a sadhu. You're not going to be begetting any children. The whole world is your children. So you don't have to raise them financially. You probably don't have a spouse. So you don't have to raise your spouse. So he's now talking about a monastic ideal. The Christ himself was a monk. So he's saying, you know what a monk should be like? A person who has no home. Swami Vivekananda would say, have thee no home, friend, for what roof can hold thee? You know, you're so vast. What roof can hold thee? The sky, thy roof, the grass, thy bed, and food, what chance may bring, well-cooked or ill, care not. That's Swamiji's Song of the Sanyasin. So if you read Swamiji's Song of the Sanyasin next to the teachings in Matthew, you'll see the Christ is doing the same thing. He's teaching absolute renunciation. Even foxes have their homes. But me, the son of God, I depend on the Lord. there's, There's no place that I call my home. Also in India, you meet a lot of people like this. There's a saying, pure is the water that flows. Pure is the monk who goes. Pure is the water that flows. Pure is the sadhu who goes. That's what the Christ is probably saying there. Okay. So, yeah, I I understand that a lot. And um, I think that St. Thomas Aquinas, I believe. I don't, I don't know if it was him. Some, someone who had a, a commentary on the book of Matthew said the same thing. Like it's a message of renunciation. But um, personally, I'm inclined to believe that just because of the context he was saying, like, because he was responding to someone that's saying he's going to follow him now, I I feel like he's kind of like stating the kind of just telling the guy, 
the reason as to why he's making that decision. Like he's saying animals are content with right. just being, but, but humans are searching for something more. And that's, I love why, that. that's why you're coming to me. I love that. So much. Lay your head, right? You're restless. You're restless for God. Yeah. So you're fit. Yeah. The fox and, and Sri Ramakrishna has the fish burrowing in the mud of the net, you know, so the net catches the fish and the worldly people are like those fish that don't even feel the danger of being in a net. They don't care. They just like burrow deeper into the mud and they're quite content to be there thinking they're rather safe until they get taken out and eaten. So worldly people are like that. They just live in the world like foxes live in their dens. I love that. That's a beautiful reading. And I think you're right insofar as there's no one way to read um, what a master says. They mean things in so many, because like, okay, so someone comes to him and says, I want to be your student. I take you on as my guru. And the guru says, all right, cool. Here's your first lesson. Teach, teach us renunciation. You know, so that, that's one way to read it. Or you could say, I want you to be my guru. I'm your disciple. Good. You're a fit disciple because you are restless. You have nowhere to lay your head. I like that a lot too. And I also like the statement that maybe he's saying, now we're going to go. But he, he might have to console him because, you know, if you're going to follow the Christ, you might have to subject yourself to hardships, even above and beyond what you knew in a small, like, Levantine Jewish settlement, you know? So he's like, maybe kind of consoling him. He's like, okay, we're going to be moving around a lot. <laughs> and just know um, you're going to be living in even more squalor than the foxes. Are you okay with that? So maybe this could be a kind of warning as to what life is actually like following the Christ. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love I love just like diving into one single line like that, where it's a very metaphorical thing. Cause it has so many, it can have so many meanings and be seen in so many ways, especially through the lens of Vedanta. Yes. It's so, it's so beautiful rereading the Bible in that way. Yeah. So. You know, one of the projects that I'm hoping to do is I'm still studying the Gitarta Sangraha of Abhinava Gupta. You know, Abhinava Gupta did a commentary on the Gita in the light of Tantra, right? So one of my projects that by the grace of God may be possible to do is to, uh, do a tantric gita so we, we did some classes on the gita you know but more like they were broad so i'd like to kind of take verse by verse spend one day whole class on one verse uh, weekly and then just do a tantric interpretation of the gita so it's one thing that i kind of have the next thing that i would like to do then i think i also want to do a tantric bible but i'm probably going to do a tantric gospel of sri Krishna first then um, i would very much like to do a tantric new testament especially like matthew Matthew is my favorite. And maybe John. John is perhaps the most confusing. So I would love to do a tantric reading of those. So I think you're right. Just take one verse and dive deep into all the possible meanings in the light of Vedanta, Tantra, Yoga, etc. Thank you. That was, you answered all my questions now. So <laughs> God forbid. Uh, <laughs> um, I wasn't here last week, so I'm going to have to catch up on all the stuff. I was sick, but I'm so glad to be back. This was a great, great lesson. Great lecture. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. G. I'm glad you're feeling better by the grace of, the, of God. Thank you. Now, um, you're making a really good point, though, about like how rich all this stuff is. You know, the beauty is we were very fortunate in that we got to sit at the feet of some really great sadhus and teachers. And when you read the Bible, it feels like having met all of those people, the scenes in the Bible really come to life. And you can really feel like you're with Jesus. And because in some sense, you were when you were with those sadhus and you heard them say very similar, eerily similar things. Many of them might've never read the Bible. Thank you, Willie. And how, however, you know, innocent they might've been of the Bible. They, when you do read the Bible after having met them, you're like, they lived it. 
They were sadhus of the highest order. So reading Jesus in the light of a culture so steeped in renunciation gives you a certain advantage. Whereas reading about Jesus in America is quite difficult because what sadhus we do meet are usually people that have fallen through the cracks of like lack of healthcare insurance for mental illness. You know, so here sadhus are not sadhus by choice often. And uh, they don't kind of carry themselves with the same like Jesus level sometimes you see in India. So that's one thing. It's nice to study the Bible from an Indian perspective. It's, it's, it, the text is very at home with the Indian ethos of renunciation. So now it's nice to see in America, so many sadhus. I came here and I was like, oh my God, there are like genuine sadhus here. Even though there's no like state project to help people uh, in that way. The culture of renunciation is very much alive. So thank you, Jackson G, for embodying that so perfectly. <laughs> yes. Good. So Marcos. Yes, Marcos G. Namaskaram. Hello. Hi. Uh, nice to meet you. Um, thank you for my first um, live class. It was wonderful. Welcome. Yeah. So I had two questions. Um, so for my first question, um, so the way I interpreted when Jesus said in the verse, um, thou, thou art forsake me. Um, the way I've interpreted that, and I've heard other people interpret that, is that Jesus is having like a dark night of the soul. Right. Yes. Um, so suppose that Jesus did suffer on the cross. Would that make his spirituality less or would that make his renunciation less? Um, and the reason why I say that is because it seems to me that part of his impact and part of the magic, so to speak, yes. of his life is the fact that Perhaps he suffered on a physiological level or mental level, whatever. The suffering itself, um, he brought himself to that point and still, you know, exemplified the best of spirituality. Right. I think this is a really good point. And even in the life of Sri Ramakrishna, now Sri Ramakrishna, his disciples claim is an avatar, an incarnation of God, just like Jesus. And even then, of the 16 direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, some of them were camp God, some of them were camp men. So, for instance, Swami Saradananda and Swami Vekaranda, they took this position of saying he's more divine because of how liable and susceptible he was to the stuff that we're susceptible to. You know, so, yeah, I think it's valuable to think of it in that lens. Like the Christ did have a dark night of the soul, not just there on the cross, but the night before. And if you watch movies, like I've seen a few uh, maybe the Gospel of John or something, there's a bunch of movies, but they always depict it that way, I've noticed. Where the night before, he's like freaking out. He doesn't want it to happen. You know, yet he knows that it must happen. And so he kind of steals himself to do something he doesn't want to do. And he endures it. You know, so I think that's valuable. I think it does add to his spirituality to say, you know, here is someone who is doing what seems to be the hard thing. And if you think of it that way, if you think that he's going the road less traveled, if he's, you know, doing something that's actually hard, that's ennobling. But and here's the point. What allowed him to take the high road? What allowed him to power through those dark nights of the soul? And the answer I would say is the divinity. So although the dark night of the soul was brought on by manhood, it was divinity that overcame it. So the goal in God coming down to be a man is to show that men can be God. So in some sense, God meets us halfway to take us the rest of the way. So we as men, as mortals, must look at the life of the Christ and say, in what way is he inviting us upward? So in that sense, it's helpful to see the divine in him and then be attracted to that. Though in the beginning, it's helpful to find relatability. So I think it all is a matter of where we are in our sadhana. 
if we're, I mean, spiritual practice, if we're early, then we want to see Christ as a man because we want to relate with him. Look, he's just like us, but we can get trapped there. You know, because then we'll say, okay, he's just like us. I don't have to change. But no, he isn't like us. He's like a God man. He's like gone way beyond what we would consider a normal psychological response to deeply distressing situations. How can I emulate that? How can I imitate that? And the answer is the power of prayer, renunciation, et cetera, et cetera. So you're right. If in one sense we say that he had a dark night of the soul and he overcame, obviously that adds to his spirituality. But in another sense, if we say the reason he overcame is because he saw himself as a spirit and he took a stand in that, then that was where his spirituality came from. Makes sense. Thank you. And my second question is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I listened to one of your lecture recordings on YouTube a while back, and I think you were doing a philosophical breakdown of uh, Advaita Vedanta, the tantric point of view. And I think it was a tantric point of view. You said something like, it's through the suffering is where the liberation is. I'm not sure if that's correct or not, but that stuck with me. And so when I think of the life of Jesus, you know, suffering on the cross, um, it, and, and what that all entails, I remember talking to my older brother and I kind of told him that point of view. And he said, well, that sounds kind of like God's a masochist or like a something like that. And that kind of stuck in my head too. I was like, okay, so sure, suffering may not be a prerequisite for spiritual, you know, spirituality, but it's inevitable. Um, and so if this is all orchestrated by mother, whatever, um, would it be a fair characterization to say that mother is sadistic, masochistic, perhaps not in a psychological uh deprivated sense but is is that a fair characterization yeah i like you very much marcos i thank god you came because you have some really good questions i'm really enjoying these (laughs) good so um let's say we directed a play and in like okay we're the game of thrones director or something you're familiar with that series Okay, so in in one of the episodes, something horrific happens to these characters. They're at like a banquet hall and they're enjoying this feast in in the company of who they think are their friends or whatever. But it turns out to be um, a backstabbing situation where all these people who were supposedly to be their friends like took a bribe from someone and they all got killed, you know, and horrifically. There was like a pregnant woman who got stabbed and like horrible stuff happened, a lot of blood. And uh, it's called a red wedding. So in TV, this is, I think, the modern tragedy of our times. Now, let's say you were the director of that episode of Game of Thrones. Now, you made it so bloody. There's such violence in there. But are you a masochist? You know, are you a mas? No, wait, are you a sadist? The director, would, you would say the director is a sadist, right? And then let's say the director, like, was also the actor. Are they a masochist? So in the case of a director directing a horrific scene and then acting in it, would you say that director was either a sadist or a masochist? Probably not. And why not? Because um, it's not real suffering. So this is the thing in Tantra. There's no real suffering. It's apparent suffering. And perhaps I'm not experientially at the point where I could really grasp what you're saying intellectually to a lived experience. But the way I see that analogy is, in my head, the analogy would be as if a serial killer is actually orchestrating everybody in that moment and all the bloody killings are happening are actually bloody killings. It's not a, it's not a play. <laughs> so yeah. well, whatever the reason the serial killer did it for, I don't know, probably just to kill. I, I just don't know, but that's how I see it still. No, but, but in this case, we know that it is a play. 
So, I mean, in this specific okay. example, it's not that like a serial killer posed as a director and then orchestrated this like horrific things. That would have made some pretty gnarly headlines, right? That's not what happened. Like just a decent director who was probably a very kind-hearted and warm-hearted person, you know, who has kids and family. Like they, they directed something that was so horrific. Um, and, and people who are also decent, good people acted in the roles of horrible. In, in this case, we know it wasn't a circular. Okay. It was like actual people, but don't we do that too? Don't we as decent law abiding people, not as serial killers, don't we write horrific stuff? Don't we make music with blues notes in it? Our music isn't all Disney channel cute. Our music is pretty heavy. Like we have metal and perfectly. I, I know someone who plays in a like heavy metal band kind of a famous heavy metal band and if you listen to their music you're like oh that's a dark but they're actually in person they own a small dog you know and they're like really cute and sweet so who they are in real life is nowhere near what you would think they would be given the darkness and death in their music so look we as humans not serial killers just like regular law-abiding citizens we make scary shit we love halloween we love watching violence. We love watching gore insofar as it's not real. So obviously it's going to be a really different experience if I'm watching an ISIS beheading video versus if I'm watching like Game of Thrones season two. Like obviously the, in the first case, I'm like, this is real. This is horrific. I mean, this would never happen to anybody, right? Like that would be horrible to me because I know it's real. As a human, I'm just speaking as like, as a niche, if I saw a beheading video, I'd be like, this is really disturbing. It's actual suffering. Whereas if I saw Game of Thrones, I would be disturbed, but in a pleasant way. I'd be able to say, aha, look at that. This is not real. None of these actors are really dying. But here's important. I don't like in that moment, I'm not like looking at people and saying, you guys know this is all special effects, right? I'm not doing that. That would be a jerk thing to do. I'm getting involved in the show. I'm believing as if it was real, but always in the back of the mind, knowing it's not real. Now, if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, and this is not even Tantra, but just Vedanta, and the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita in chapter two, you know, uh, one of the first lessons that Krishna teaches Arjuna, and of course, the first lesson is get up and fight, you know, deal with your problems. But the, the first, I guess, spiritual Vedantic lesson as if the first one wasn't spiritual, but the Vedantic lesson was he who kills and he who thinks he is being killed, both are ignorant of the truth. The wise more not for the living or for the dead. So he gives his metaphor of like changing clothes. Like death is really like a change of clothes and it's no big deal. So if your mom like came down the stairs in a green dress and then she went up and came down in a red dress, it would be irrational for you to mourn the loss of the green dress as if it was the loss of your mother. Similarly, if we see other people from the point of view of spirit, then the loss of a body is not really the loss of a person. It's just a change of clothes. So in Vedanta, as... Krishna teaches it in the Gita. The first lesson is just to realize that what you considered so serious and heavy only a moment ago isn't from the highest, most absolute point of view. And even if it's not a lived experience now, it's okay. We can just I even arguably take it on faith and say, you know what? From the point of view of Vedanta, I'm not a body. I'm not a mind. All this suffering, therefore, doesn't really apply to me. It's apparent. It's a perceived suffering and not an actual suffering. Now we come to Tantra. Then we take this actors on a stage metaphor. So Makali is not... Um, masochistic or sadistic in directing and in acting. Rather, because she knows that there's no real suffering, it's not like she's orchestrating suffering and then entering into it and suffering. You know. Now, do we feel suffering? Absolutely we do. But if you look back at your life and you consider all those times that you suffered, would you change them? I mean, maybe. But don't you find that at least some of those times were meaningful for your overall like experience here in the world? Like if you could come back and do it all again without any of those moments of suffering, you wouldn't, right? Very few people would like do that. And that's why I think at the end of one's life, you can look back and say, man, that was all so worth it. 
even the horrific stuff at the time it was so horrific now when i look back it's art sometimes you just have to step back and realize you're not that one hieronymus bosch character being flogged you're the whole hieronymus bosch painting and the whole thing is grandier only because it's art it's not actually there so that's the that's the argument so i'm talking to you now theologically from the tantric theological point of view and this is of course very intellectual and heady the idea that like okay it's a theological speculation god is this cosmic sorceress and she creates this world using herself as a canvas and then enters into it as every living being and just for fun she does all of this because she knows no one is really suffering let me come down a few levels and say in the in the case of a sadhaka in the case of a spiritual practitioner wholly apart from any theological speculation what does suffering mean to us now you already hinted at one which is it's a good gateway to spirituality so i would reject the premise that it makes you more spiritual i would say that it is liable to conversion experience so if if someone is suffering they're more likely to become you know dis disenchanted with money power you know like pleasure they're more likely to see the as my guru likes to say voidness of everything so a person who is suffering will feel what the buddhist called divine dispassion and they will come to spiritual life so suffering prepares you for spiritual life so you could say okay makali creates the world and in the world i'm going to give you a different theology now in the world um there is this joy it's called devotion the greatest joy you can experience in the world the most lasting fulfillment you can find is to become a devotee of god or to become a gyani in nirvikalpa samadhi let's just say that um now if makali enters the world she first desires to taste life as a sansara in a worldling because she desires to kind of taste it all she has to create an inbuilt feature in her world to remind her of the higher ideals so suffering is that inbuilt feature it's like suffering is the world's feedback that makali is not pursuing the path of her highest alignment so she like installs the software of suffering just in case she forgets she's makali so it's her rod to remind herself that she's makali it's like why are you hitting yourself ma why are you hitting yourself ma so every time you suffer it's makali telling you become spiritual once you become actually spiritual arguably all your suffering ends then you don't suffer anymore so i wouldn't say spirituality is helpful Uh, I wouldn't say suffering is helpful in spirituality. I would say it's helpful to come to spirituality. Suffering is a prerequisite to spirituality. Okay, spiritual suffering is really sweet. Even the tough times in spiritual, like Tulsi Das says, one tear cried for the longing of separation from God is sweeter than all the joys in the world. So it's no longer suffering at that point. Now, when I said enter God through suffering, I actually mean it in a in a slightly more um. esoteric way. So essentially what I'm saying is let's say right now there's grief. Okay, so this is grief in the heart. If you enter into the intensity of that grief, there is a very real possibility that the mind will be obliterated. And if the mind is obliterated, that's in effect nirvikalpa samadhi. So the tantric technique of entering into suffering is to divest all experiences of any labeling, any storytelling, any meaning making. Such a, you don't even call it suffering anymore. At that point, it's just sensation. whether it's pain or grief you just sit and in meditation you enter so fully into whatever sensation is presenting itself to you and as it fades your mind will fade too and then god that's another sense in which we mean this not like literal suffering but any sensation is good <laughs> well thank you for that comprehensive answer yeah If we do anything here Marco it's taking 30 or 40 minutes to answer a rather simple and straightforward question. <laughs> I'm like you know what? <laughs> anyway, good to have you. How did you find us? 
Um, so your one of your videos popped up on like my YouTube Explore feed, and um, I it's been months ago, but I've been watching your videos and also on Spotify for the love of yoga. I've been listening to that every now and then. Cool. Yes, I really appreciate your questions because they're very insightful and thoughtful. And I really, I think, as Tara is saying, look at Tara is kind of placed here in the chat. Um, thank you for asking this question. I happen to train the biggest Jesus Christ bhakta I've met at work today. So it just so happened to debate the Christ suffering. And the first question slash answer you asked was what he was trying to express. Yeah. And the second question was uh, what I was trying to express. Beautiful combination of the two for me personally and a lot to digest and put into practice. Do you want to like unmute and say that? I don't know. I just kind of read you. But you're right here. Like, why did I just read your comment when you're right here? <laughs> All as well. <laughs> <laughs> But it was really interesting because it's like um, even before I saw what the lecture topic was, we were talking about um, he was like that Christ suffered is more important than whether or not he suffered. And I was yeah. like, oh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate this question being asked because it it helped me digest that quite a bit. Yeah. So, yeah. I wanted to make a thing of not posting Q&A's on YouTube anymore just because I thought it would create this like wonderful intimacy. But this one I think is so rich. This one I think has to go up, right? Like I think this would be valuable for lots of us because I think a lot of us are obsessed with suffering. We love, we love to suffer because Ma loves to suffer. So we cannot accept a Christ who didn't suffer. So that's why I think Tara, thank you for saying that. Okay, okay, good night to you. <laughs> yeah, so thank you, Marcos, because um, I think that was the heart of the lecture. That's why we started the way that we did, right? At the beginning of the lecture, I was like, look, we want the Christ to have suffered. It just seems to us for various reasons. Some people feel like selfishly, maybe if he suffered, then I'm cleansed. Like I kind of alluded to at the beginning of the lecture, but others, I think in a more noble way, like in your sense, like you've experienced in your own life, how conducive suffering is to sadhana. And so clearly the Christ in his suffering, that just aggrandized him and ennobled him. If he didn't suffer, what's the use? Who wants a God who doesn't cry like that? He's got to feel what we feel. And Sri Ramakrishna, he suffered great grief at the loss of his uh, nephew, Akshay. So he said, oh, it's like someone was wringing out the towel of my heart. If I, as a holy man, feel this for my nephew, what must the worldly people feel for their relatives? And Swami Vivekananda could not sleep at night because he could feel the suffering of humanity. He had that Bodhisattva vibe, you know, where he just he was so moved by suffering and he would just pace back and forth and cry. And he would say, if you could only feel for them, brother, what I feel for them. And the Christ would cry and he says, ye sons of Jerusalem, you know, if you only, you only knew, why do you stone your prophets? He has all these. So I, I think you, there's a lot of very important things to consider in what you said, Marcos. Like that, there's a lot of value in that framing too. And they're by no means mutually exclusive. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. I'm going to head out. Good night. Okay. Good night, dear Marcos. Thank you, brother. Thank you. All right. Yes, dear cat. Hello. Hello. Um, it's not so much a question. I just had something I wanted to share and Please. it was going to take up like the whole chat. But I'm just really grateful that you're doing this. So like a few years ago, I absolutely never, ever, ever would have watched videos or lectures that had the words like Christ or Christian or anything yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. there. Because I live in Arkansas and there's a lot of people here who use Christianity with the air quotes as yes. an excuse to just be hateful to other people. Right. Um, but when the pandemic started, 
um, some friends and I, and we invited some of our other friends, and we started this weekly spiritual discussion thing on Zoom from all these different backgrounds and ended up making friends with these two Christian guys on there who one of them is like absolutely a bhakta and the other one is definitely a Ghana Guiana he's a history professor and <laughs> like they've become some of my closest friends and right. me and Jamie my bhakta friend have actually we've had a lot of these discussions comparing like the traditions that I follow and Christianity and we've even like gone so far as to completely unplanned accidentally do the same ritual on the same night um him him to Michael and me to Makali wow. and we didn't know about it until later but it was it was actually one of the most profound ceremonies I've ever done it was the first one that I did with Makali to kind of confirm if if it, if she <laughs> wanted me if it was okay for me to work with her and we we'd both gone out into the woods and built fires like I had a machete and he had a sword and we both <laughs> did these like devotional like practices and both felt this absolutely just profound sense of like like to me it felt like just all the weight was lifted off my shoulders and just absolute like peace and bliss and we talked about this later to find out that it was I mean it was so clearly that we were working with the same entity and the same energy we were just calling it by different names oh thank you for doing this (laughs) <laughs> Mikael and Makali, right? The red and the black and the fire and brimstone and the stepping on the serpent. Yeah, you're right. It's just the same energy with different names. Yes, you are most welcome, Kat. It's exactly for this reason that I enjoy doing this so much because how much more can we enjoy once we open up to something that maybe previously we couldn't enjoy? You know, it's like It's like once maybe we met someone who liked vanilla ice cream and they were such a jerk that every time we walked into a Baskin Robbins, we, we refused to even look at the vanilla. And so we just enjoy our chocolate or our mint chocolate chip. In my case, it's almost always mint chocolate chip. It's very rare that you will catch me getting any flavor at the ice cream place, but mint chocolate chip. Then I came to Vedanta and I was like, you know what? I should apply to my ice cream the same thing that I applied to my spirituality. Let's try everything. And then I realized other ice cream flavors are pretty awesome too. <laughs> So now we get all 31, or in our case, 108. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Kat. I think that was so special. And really good encouragement also to do this because, you know, as you can probably tell, there's also some backlash from talking about the Christ for many communities. The Indians don't like it. The Christians don't like it. Like, it's kind of like, oh, it's that time of year again that I'm so excited to talk about the Christ. But also it's a time of the year where everyone's like, take me off the mailing list. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> And you should see, we once did, um, Swami Chid Brahmanandaji came and he gave a talk, Vedantic Christianity. And it was so sad, like all the comments of people who were watching that video, they were excited because it was Vedanta, but appalled that that word Vedanta would be next to Christianity. So like Indians, you know, who were like appalled at that. And then, you know, there's, it, that, that's the irony. But then to hear about how true and sincere people are and like how they're interacting with it like your share is is so heartwarming and inspiring to like just do lectures like this you know be 
bold and just speak about the Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get over it in our spiritual path. If we're really on a spiritual path, I feel like we we'll get over those judgments. Yes, I think so. All in Ma's time. But uh, this is so fun. I'm really enjoying myself. And I'm excited for next week's Art of Prayer because how you were saying, like the peace and bliss of going out into the forest with either a machete for Makali or a sword for Mikael and just like lighting a fire and doing a devotional practice. Just yesterday, we had a puja for Ma Sharada, the spiritual consort of Sri Ramakrishna. And um, towards the end of every puja, there's a homa fire, which is probably the world's oldest extant spiritual tradition. You know, the Vedic homa fire. And it's like the kind of dawn of civilization, the idea of worshiping a fire as God. And we were all sitting there in this Los Angeles, I mean, middle of Hollywood. Like here's West Hollywood monastery. And the home of fire is in literally a chimney in a living room. And we're sitting there and this great master, my guru, he's sitting there, he's doing it. All these monks around and all the devotees are sitting and swaha, swaha, swaha. You know, the same Vedic mantras that were uttered in the years 3,800 BC and God knows how much earlier than that. Like, it's just to feel the living power of these traditions that continue to be felt by everyone everywhere in their unique ways. I mean, what, what could be greater than to be a part of this as we are now and to, to be able to come together and be a part of this? Look at all these people. Isn't this so cool that we get to do this? <laughs> if, if nobody else has pressing questions, Please. and if it's not too long of an answer, um, would you mind explaining how you do the Homa fire part of the ritual? Because I think I've learned a lot of Kali Puja correctly, more or less, but that Good. part I don't know very well. Yes. So um, it's quite a process, right? There's a lot of stuff that happens. You know, there's like in the beginning, you do something similar to what you would do in a Puja. So you would do the same mantras like Tad Avishnu, Paramam Padam, Sadapashanti Surya, and then Om Apavitra, Pavitrova, Sarvavastam, Gatopiva, like all that stuff's kind of the same. You'd also kind of establish the seat the same way, you know, Om Asya Asana Paveshana Mantrasya Meru Prishta Rishihi, like that same mantra that you would do in Tantric Puja, you actually also do in the Vedic Homa Fire. Now it's interesting because Vedic Homa Fire and Tantric Puja are two different ritual traditions, but they like share a lot. And I'm way more at home in the Tantric Puja than I am with the Vedic Homa Fire. In fact, some Tantric Pujas are forbidden to monks and arguably some Vedic Homa Fires are too. But uh, some Vedic Homa fires are forbidden to householders and I'm a householder. So like I'm more comfortable with the tantric stuff, but so much of the tantric stuff is used in Homa. So typically you would establish the seat, you would worship the guru and all that. Then this is the main thing. You invoke the presence of the deity, not in a murti, but in a fire. There's a certain way of placing sticks. There's a certain geometry there, you know, in placing the stakes. There's certain like things that you offer the fire. There's a mantra when you douse the fire, there's a mantra of earth, be cool, be cool. You say fire, go back to the South. So there's all that stuff. Um, as you probably kind of intuited, it's a very involved answer. And maybe we can together um, learn home of fire. Maybe we could sit and do some home of fire, just like in a, in a different setting than this one, just because it's very detail oriented. And I know you're a ritualist, so you will love it. You'll just get so much joy out of it. But some people I don't think are very ritually oriented. So I think I better spare them the tedium of mantra and geometry. And Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I would love to learn that. Yes. And you're coming for the Kali Puja classes. I've noticed you've come on Mondays at yes. six, right? You've been coming. Yes, I try. I try to make it here on time. 
Good. So don't worry, we're now just starting like this introduction to puja class and we're a couple of classes in now, I think six or seven maybe classes in. And thus far, we've only talked about broad overarching themes, but my intention, mother willing, might be possible with the grace of God is to kind of um, do like step-by-step puja. So we'll start with the first part. I think today we kind of did that, like the first part, purity, and then one by one we'll do until we get to the end of puja and then we'll go to arati. Then we'll learn Arati. And then once we're finished with Arati, we'll go to Homa. So it is part of this series. Eventually, we'll get to the Homa fire together. You know, so we will get there. Mother willing. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you. I'm Thank trying you. to make it here on Thursdays. I haven't quite actually gotten there yet, but... <laughs> That's okay. Mother so, willing, one of these days soon. Mother willing. Did I send you the playlist? Did you Did you message me on Discord or anything? Um, no, I haven't sent it to you, right? Like, d- message me, and I'll send you some playlist for those videos. Okay, yeah, you don't I think have to watch I, them. I think it's the one for the Patreon, but it's not as much as I, it's a little bit more than I can afford right now. That's the thing so. I'm saying. Like, I'll just send you the playlist okay. to those, so okay. you don't have to go on the Patreon. Like, I'll just like send you the playlist on YouTube, so you can just like watch them for free, you know. But okay. text me. That would be amazing. Just okay, text me on Discord. And I'll be like, here you go. That that'll be good. Awesome. That's Thank just really so there much. to, you know, th- that's just there to keep out spiritual tourists. Because especially with Tantra, you have to have some gatekeeping. But if like I see someone is like a genuine spiritual aspirant, then please, I will waive any and all financial barriers. So just like, don't worry about that. Text me. You know, Thank you. Yeah, that's how I found your channel was to find more information on how to do puja and, mm-hmm. you know, real Tantra, not the weird American sex thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how Mother Kali, once she puts the desire in a devotee's heart to worship her, she also prepares all the means for that proper worship to happen. (laughs) Thank you. I will stop taking up everyone's (laughs) time. No, you could never. You yourself are time. How can you take up anybody's time, Kalima? You know, (laughs) what can you say about that? All right. So I think that's been a kind of nice closing note. I just wanted to say hi to Tejas is back. I think I've not seen Tejas in a long time. Though I've seen you on Patreon, but I've not actually seen you in the lectures. It's... Hello, Tejas. Welcome. Hi, Nesh. <clears throat> good to be back. Always good Welcome to be back. back. Thank you. It was great. I was late, but it's been great. <laughs> so are you in Pakistan now? No, I'm, I'm actually from India, but I'm in the U.S. I'm in Portland, Oregon. Oh, you're in Oregon. Okay. Why did I get the impression that we were texting? No, that's... Are you TJ Saab? Yeah. You are, yeah, right? It, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I thought you were yeah. TJ Saab. Yeah, through in, uh, Instagram or something. We texted on Instagram, yeah. Yes, yes. As I, remember, I remember the name TJ Saab, and I'm like, I think that's you. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's Amal you. is in Oregon, brother. He's in Portland. He's in uh, near the... Oh, okay. Yeah, you should meet each other. For sure. There's a Vedanta temple Amal. there. Amal, do you want to tell him about the Vedanta temple? Where's Amal here? Oh, there it is. Yes. C. I was looking for A. I was like, where's Amal? There. Yes. Uh, one sec. I'm, I flew into... Uh, I'm at my, my mom's. One second. Let me... Yes. I was in the living room. Um, yeah, I, I missed the first hour of lecture because I was on a plane. Oh. Let's see. But yeah. There you um, are. In California. Should, <laughs> yes. Um, you should definitely come to the temple. We, uh, you know, we just also had our own Sarada 
Saturday v Puja on Saturday. And uh, we have a little bit of a little small um, niche sangha going on in Portland. So um, we'd love to have you on, uh, you know, Sundays. We have a Gita class. Um, it's in Mount Tabor area. Oh, yeah. And, uh, okay. You know, yeah. you're free to come Is anytime for RT. Yeah, near Mount Tabor. It's it's like a big, big house, like a mansion kind of thing. But um, yeah, please awesome. please come. It's it's a uh, nice to have physical like space. You know, come for uh, the yeah, shrines. Really amazing. So yeah, please amazing. feel free to come. Thanks, thanks. Um, sun Sundays we just had a, a Swami from India on um. Sunday, who was an issue. I, I unfortunately, I right now I don't know his name off the top of my head, but um, he had such a Swamiji vibe. He's really tall. Um, I was I came out of the shrine at like five minutes before uh, the lecture, and um, my leg had fallen asleep, and I was like standing there. There's this, uh, you know, when like older people have to there's a bar yeah, the that they have to hold i was like standing there holding the railing i couldn't move him my legs were asleep and then like swami came in and was like um i was like in his way it was really funny i was like pronounced Maharaj, but um he was really he had such a swami g vibe he was like a very big tall being and uh um he really had that like um whatever you do like um it was almost like whatever you do with vigor like you will succeed and he was like mm. i don't know he had this huge uh, total swamiji energy see i thought you were gonna say really, chastise really you for like, limping around <laughs> no i've been i've been to a no advaita vedanta temple in portland oregon and at uh swami chandra shekhar anand I know if you know him, but <clears throat> yeah, I was I've met him a couple of times. Yes, <clears throat> that's the oh. one. That's the temple. That's what I'm always talking about. Did you meet him at the that's temple? The oh, yeah. okay. I've been there. I've You've been, been there. there. Yes, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna be there soon. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Good. Switch numbers or something, yeah, so that you guys can contact each yeah. other. Yeah, are you on? Are you on Discord? Are you on the Nish, Nish's Discord? Yeah. Yeah. This is Amal. Amal. Okay. Yes. I'll, I'll Amal. Let you Amal basically runs the Discord, bro. He's like. Yeah, we have. A... <laughs> <laughs> no. I've been oh, to like lately. I feel bad because I'm, uh, you know, I was kind of holding down some of the fort, but I haven't been lately but oh, well you'll be back <laughs> but um yeah we have a little portland portland sangha like discord group too just like a few of us good so um yeah okay let me so we'd love you to you know awesome. let's do it awesome. please you know look for, uh, yeah i was looking for guidance thanks not to interrupt your uh you know you were talking to niche but just so you know we do have people in portland so Awesome. No, it's good to know that. Thanks, Nish, for um, introducing me. 
Isn't it so nice to feel like we're all here together? Like we're all on the same path, peers, walking to God together. It's just so nice to do it together. It is. It's impossibly lonely sometimes when you're devoted to truth and you live in a world surrounded by people who also are devoted to truth, but perhaps not in the way that we are. It's like sometimes it can be kind of lonely. So when you meet people who are serious about spiritual life in any capacity, devotees love devotees. You can double your joy. <laughs> Yeah, definitely gets lonely, but yeah. Yeah, that's why. So you can meet Amal Prabhu here and then it'll be nice. Good. Yeah, I was almost going to say it's almost impossible. I would almost say to do it alone. You know? Yeah. It's really tough. I think we don't have to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't. Yeah, so moved. Also, young people. Sometimes that's an issue. You know, with uh, Vedanta temples can be, you have a lot of the older generation. And sometimes as a young person, it felt like, where are where is everyone? But thank know. you to TikTok. We're all coming out of the woodworks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And Pooja, how are you? You. Um, started practicing some Hatha Yoga. Puja is learning Ayurveda and some Hatha Yoga. So I've not seen you on Friday, so I was wondering what happened to Puja. Friday night, we have Hatha Yoga class at five. Sometimes. I'm always happy when Puja comes to that class. Hey, there's Kayam. He's appearing. Long time. This fellow also has not come. Okay, you know what? I'm just going to end this recording because I don't know why we're recording this like hangout. So I'm just going to end this recording. <laughs> oh, did you call him? My, um, I, I muted my um my laptop because somebody was talking to me. So Yeah, yeah. no, no. I had a I feeling was talking... I, I was like, you were calling on me. And then... Yeah. No, exactly. I was. <laughs> well, yeah. let me just end the recording. Oh, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Shri Ramakrishna Arpanam Astu. Just ending this recording so that we can like hang out.